1: And now, Dankosky Quality Pictures presents
0: America's number one cartoon star, Daisy Wolf, in All Paws on
2: Deck. Oh, hey, look at that! It's the chipmunks from next door, in a sailboat! Maybe I'll join them! Cat. Uh, why? Are we stopping, JB? I just got word from the studio. We're shutting down production on this title. Starting tomorrow, we'll be shooting all our cartoons in color. <gasps> color? I can't do color, JB. I was just voted the number one cartoon star of 1938. People love me in black and white. Why mess with a good thing? They're gonna love you even more in color, baby. Well, what about all these yellow patches on my fur? This, this gray on my muzzle? Well, it's silver.
0: Ah, they can touch up anything in the
3: lab. You know that.
2: I don't like it, JB. Color is all wrong for cartoons. They have more impact in black and white. This is it's just a fad. I might go back to the stage for a while until this color thing fizzles out. The stage? Baby, you're a cartoon wolf. You think you're going to play Ibsen? Okay, okay, I'll try it. But mark my words, JB, the day will come when the best filmmakers in the world will choose to shoot in black and white once again.
0: you are crazy, kid. Once the people in the cheap seats feast their peepers on Technicolor, black and white will be six feet under.
2: Well, when that day comes, I'll make one more film about a famous filmmaker, Sandy Bates, who is plagued by fans who prefer his earlier, funnier movies to his more recent artistic efforts while he tries to reconcile his conflicting attraction to two very different women, the earnest, intellectual Daisy, that's me, and the more maternal Isabel. And people will cross the street
0: to avoid it and go see werewolves having sex with vampires. In color.
2: I think I'm going to be ill. Meanwhile, here's a show about black and white. And now he thought Fifty Shades of Grey would have been better without all the spanking. Colin McEnroe.
1: That was just my thought. You got a nice story there. Why have all the spanking and the hitting? Um, all right, we are going to talk about black and white today. We're going to talk about it three different ways. In this first segment, we are going to talk about black and white in movies, in cinema. We are not going to talk about cartoon wolves who are, not, who are unable to make the adjustment from black and white to color. Uh, we feel we've covered that already. Uh, in the second segment, we're going to talk about possibly the most famous U.S. party ever, and that was uh, the so-called party of the century, Truman Capote's black and white ball. And in the final segment, we are going to talk about uh, zebras. And in particular, actually, some recent research uh, on the biology of zebras, and really why zebras are the way they are so Three very diverse looks at black and white. What can I tell you? Uh, we're going to start. We're very excited. Uh, Carrie Rickey, film critic and writer, uh, will be joining us in just a second. You can read her work at CarrieRickey.com. Uh, but we're going to start out with Jay Hunter. He's a cinematographer uh, and was director of photography for Joss Whedon's film, Much Ado About Nothing. He's joining us from the Marketplace Studios in Los Angeles. I should say right at the outset that the idea for this show arose about a year ago, more maybe more than a year ago now, out of, as is so often the case, my own blinkered philistine pig ignorance, I had just read that uh, Nebraska was uh, the, the next Alexander Payne movie was going to come out in black and white, and I, you know, be being a philistine, I kind of did a little inward sigh and I thought, oh, I'm I'm not going to like it, and it's. He's probably going through some kind of phase where he wants to be more like Woody Allen or something, and so it's got to be black and white. Now I went out to see Nebraska, and it's a fabulous movie, and I was completely wrong. I can't imagine Nebraska not in black and white. It's essential somehow to the vision uh, of what that movie is. And similarly, I mean, if you listen to the show that we did after we all saw much ado about nothing, we had a great time at this movie, Uh, and but uh, it raises all kinds of interesting questions, particularly for those of us who are Philistines and who don't necessarily understand why these choices get made the way that they are. So we're going to go right to the source now. We, As I said, Jay Hunter was uh, director of photography on Joss Whedon's film, Much Ado About Nothing. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And and so let's just start at the, at the beginning. Why, why did you, why did Joss Whedon, why did somebody decide uh, that this movie, which we know can be shot in lush colors because we've seen it done on, on a prior version of it, why shoot this movie in black and white?
3: Well, I mean, that that decision was primarily Joss's. Uh, when I when he invited me onto the project, that was sort of a a mandate. Um, wasn't really open for discussion. It was, <laughs> this movie's going to be in black and white. Um, not that I would uh, argue with it, because it's a it's a treat as a cinematographer to be uh, given that opportunity. It's really a rarity these days. So, you know, it's something that you see in maybe a commercial here or two or a music video, but it's rare to have a, an entire feature film be in black and white. So... So, so that that was a delight to hear that. But I, I did ask him what his uh, reasoning was, and he, you, you know, I think it was an instinctual thing for him. He just felt he'd always seen the movie in black and white in his head, and um, you know, he he said publicly that um, that that you know, a major reason why it's in black and white is because there was no money, uh, and certainly when you take out the element of color. Uh, It makes the production that much less uh, uh, painstaking because, you know, typically on a film when you have uh, when you're shooting color, you know, you have to make all these decisions based on the color of the clothes and the walls and this and that. And you're constantly thinking about color. So to take that out of the equation, um, simplified things so that he could focus on other things. But, you, you know, I. I, I do think that there is something deeper going on, that, you know, maybe something just instinctual that, that that he felt like that was the right way to go, and and, and I'm, I'm certainly very pleased with with uh, uh, with that decision because I, I can't really see the movie playing well in color. It's, it seems like it has to be in black and white, you know, after having made it.
1: Um, actually i 'm getting a very interesting follow up question from some somebody else here didn 't you have to then think about how those colors would translate into black and white i mean it's if you 're shooting in color you 're thinking about color if you 're shooting in black and white you 're thinking about a translation process
3: oh yeah absolutely i mean th- th- that's you know every color photographs differently in black and white the you know the, the shades of gray uh, you know red is it looks different than blue and 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 so on and so forth but um an interesting uh, element of that is that uh, we didn 't do this we didn 't do this on our film, but on I, I had listened to it uh, an interview with Faden Papa Michael who shot uh, Nebraska, and a really cool technique they did was they, they were able to uh, grab certain colors. And um, because the color would never be represented in color on the film, they could then take that color and say make it be a darker gray or a lighter gray. So they could actually in post manipulate the 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 grayscale to a great degree just by grabbing onto the colors um, in the uh, in the color correction session. So. We didn't do we didn't have that technology <laughs> available to us uh, on on our film but um, but yeah it, it does factor in quite a bit but uh, a lot of these things are affected by lighting so if you know if you have a wall that that is uh, let's say red and it's it's looking too dark on you know in, in the black and white version, you just add more light to it. I mean, you can, you can do things that don't require you to repaint the set, which we never had the ability to do.
1: Um, is there a monochrome stock to shoot these things on, or do you shoot them on color stock and turn them into black and white in post? Uh,
3: we, we shot on the Red Epic camera, which is a, uh, a color camera, essentially, and then we took the color away in post. There is a, a version of the Red Epic, I believe it's called the the epic monochrome that came out about a year after we shot the film which actually does shoot uh, natively in black and white Um, and of course there's film but uh film was just uh, out of our reach on this project it, it It never would have happened. I mean the you know our entire budget would have covered the film stock for half the shoot i think <laughs> well let me ask so,
1: you a, uh, let me ask you a different kind of financial question and once again, this is an area that, as a cinematographer you're not necessarily involved in the discussions, but I'm sure you you hear the discussions. My guess is that it's harder to market a black and white film that that producers have to think about this that that is it is it going to be a strike against it because of Philistines like me um, who are apprehensive or, or, or turned off by the notion of a black and white movie. So that as Joss Whedon or anybody is sort of working out the calculations here, what kind of budget do I have, blah, 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 you've also got to think about the back end. Is that a consideration?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think it's hard to market a black and white movie, try a black and white Shakespeare movie. (laughs) (laughs) But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I I mean, that's certainly a a reason that I think the budget was kept to, uh, you know, on the low end. So it was affordable because I think when we we were filming uh, this movie in particular, we. I mean, we all hoped that a lot of people would see it, that it would be in the theaters and it would get released. But, but I think we were also thinking, oh, this will just, you know, this could just be something fun for the fans of Josses and for us, and you know, it, it could be just an, you know, like a high budget home home movie experiment, so to speak. But um, obviously, it became something more. Um, but. I mean, it's 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 de- it's definitely an element of the the marketing process whether it's shot in black and white. I mean, no one wants you to shoot in black and white. That's for sure. Uh, I, I know in the case of Nebraska, they uh, they shot in color. They shot digitally. Uh, you know, drained the color from from the camera in post, but then I believe they had to deliver a color version for their international distributors, which. Uh, which which demand apparently uh color versions of films I, I know the man who wasn 't there, the Coen brothers film uh was done the same way they shot on film, but they shot color film and and uh and printed uh but printed the u s version in black and white um, so yeah it's it 's a big consideration because i th- I think you know unfortunately people just don 't uh you know they 're turned off by it I, I I think to a large degree, but I think that 's also changing i mean you know the the year that Much Ado came out, it, Nebraska came out, and um, Francis Ha and uh, I believe what was the movie called Escape from Tomorrow? I believe it's called the, about the the sh- movie shot in Disneyland um, clandestinely, and also uh, you know,
1: Caesar Must Die, which was a terrific movie shot in black and white. Yes.
3: Break. Um, yes, absolutely. Well, let's, let's
1: uh, add, uh, we're going to have Jay Hunter here for a while, and uh, let's add to the conversation uh, also Carrie Rickey, uh, film critic and writer. Uh, Carrie Rickey, you've been listening to the first part of this conversation. Maybe I'll start you out, I'm assuming, because uh, you see everything, that you saw Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah,
4: it was lovely work, Jay, yes, I and,
3: have. Oh, thank you.
1: Well, can you say more about that? Can you say how you think the black and white works in that particular movie? Um. Well,
4: some movies... I found that um, Whedon's Much Ado* made me concentrate on the language and the characters rather than the, um, you know, the costumes. And when Shakespearean movies are done in their own period, you're kind of you're looking at the the eye candy. But I thought it kind of simplif- you know, it was simplified, it was modern, and you listened. <laughs> and it didn't give it didn't throw all this other stuff at you. I mean, I think um, that as as black and white was dying, or as monochrome films were dying um, in Hollywood, there were directors. I guess three directors that really brought it back for different reasons. You know, Peter Bogdanovich shot the last picture Mm -hmm. show in Paper Moon in black and white because he wanted those movies to look like the um, 1950s and 1930s eras in which they were set. Uh, Same thing with Martin Scorsese in Raging Bull. And then you have Woody Allen with Manhattan. You know, Manhattan is this great deco black and white city. Mm. And he kind of made it look like it was in its glory um, with you know, Gershwin, and you see everything in black and white like you used to see in 1930s movies. So I think sometimes you do it because it evokes a certain period. You, I, I yeah, don't think Whedon did that.
1: No, I did although I, I think you could say that, in a way, it pulls it out of any particular time period. You have people not in period dress here. Uh, you have what's pretty obviously a, a kind of modern setting. On the other hand, you have Elizabethan language. And, and the black and white has a way of kind of neutralizing all those time distinctions and, and, and making it at no particular time. Um, at least that was sort of one of the ways that that, that, that I read that. Okay, yeah, I would agree ahead. with that. Um, Jay Hunter, let me just ask you this. You know, she just re- uh, ticked through some of the modern artists working in black and white, whether it's Raging Bull or Manhattan or Last Picture Show. Does and I don't know when you went to film school, but I mean, I assume you looked at a lot of black and white movies uh, when you were studying and learning to be a cinematographer. Did that make you want to make quote your black and white movie or more than one black and white movies?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, most photographers and cinematographers, when you start off, you start off shooting black and white at one point or another. And, and, um, I mean, in a sense, it's, it's photography at its purest form because it's just the, uh, you know, the grayscale, it's, 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 it's the silver. It, I, I mean, it, not not that color film is 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 a corruption by any means but 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 I, but there, there's a certain purity to it and a, and, a, and a minimalism um where you can really hone in your craft uh you know your 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 choice of lens your focus your your depth um and not be distracted by the by the the element of color i mean uh you know one point that was brought up earlier was that was that when you watch something in black and white uh you're not thinking about color, you're not thinking about the color of the costume or this or that. And so I think, I think it's interesting phenomena that your when your brain, uh, isn't, isn't stimulated by color, I think, uh, there are other elements of your, of your perception that that are, that perhaps become more sensitive, uh, you know, whether that's the, you know, sound or, or, or whether it's just, you know, your ability to concentrate on the words, um, like Carrie said, but, um... But yeah, I mean, it's every it's everybody's dream to make a black and white movie. I don't think that 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 was true maybe in the fifties, but uh, <laughs> but you know it was it was just by default. But um, you know, th- there's a certain nostalgia to it. I mean, you know, so so many of the great films of all time were shot on black and white, and and you know, w- w- when you see your own work in black and white, it, you can't help but feel uh, a certain bit of excitement. I mean, on, on much ado about nothing, my my. My take on it was that uh, I, I kind of fashioned it after after more French New Wave kind of films of the '60s, and and uh, where where you know the camera, or the the directors were you know shooting a lot of handheld and a lot of like soft uh, light and available light, and you know they, they weren't they weren't lighting their films like uh, like the studios were. They they, they were sort of t- giving a more rough uh, kind of uh, softer feel, <laughs> rough softer feel, kind of a contradiction. But um, <laughs> the <clears throat> but. Uh so I I kind of styled it after that and, and my my theory was well there's you start with Shakespeare which is quite old uh material source material and you bring it to the present day uh by shooting it uh you know in a contemporary setting and then you put it in a time machine again and then you know jettison it back to the 60s that the you know through that that shifting in time periods that you might get something interesting
1: Kerry do you ever as a critic see a movie and think okay I don't know why this movie is in black and white it it doesn't seem to serve the movie in any particular way. I don't understand the filmmaker's choice.
4: Um. Well, I love black and white, so I, I usually w- wouldn't complain. Uh, initially, in Francis Ha, I, said, I did think, why is this black and white? And uh, like Jager said, black and white movies make many of us think about the French New Wave and these young people on the street exuberant, not in a studio setting, and I, and I think that Francis Hall was in black and white because it kind of, it went back to this kind of youthful exuberance and uh, young people on the street trying to find out who they are, and it, it worked for me. There's actually another movie in theaters now called Ida, or actually Ida, a Polish movie set in the early 60s, shot in black and white, and it looks just like the most gorgeous early 60s Polish movie ever. And um, there was, you know, the reason he shot it because he wanted it to look like it was happening in the period it was
1: set. And there's a lot of that. I mean, you've alluded to that before, and certainly we can think of other movies. Good night and good luck. I mean, it's in black and white because. We like nineteen. Saw- yeah, we saw the we saw the world in, in black and white uh, during that sort of uh, Fred Friendly, Edward R. Murrow period. The artist is in black and white for obvious reasons. Ed Wood is is in in black and white, right? Because once again, you want to evoke, evoke a nostalgic period where people saw a lot of things in black and white. Well,
4: black and white as in uh, true or false, or because mm-hmm. the media was in black and white.
1: Well, that's a great question. <laughs> Um, and and I would have, I would assume with a movie like Good Night and Good Luck that might be kind of a double message there.
4: Yes, that's, that's I mean, you made me just think that.
1: Yeah, no, your question. I think we may have had an an app or two actually happen <laughs> right here on the air. Hey, Jay Hunter, I wanted to go back to um, to something that you said before because I, I just it never really occurred to me that way. So it it really was significantly less expensive. It actually was a budget altering thing to shoot Much Ado in black and white
3: I don't know if it if it was a direct uh, budget saver so to speak but but certainly y- y- you're not tempted or uh, or uh, you're not driven crazy by, by by color so you know you you're you, th- you know the the idea that you might dip into your pocket for a few extra bucks to deal with something some color issue that's bothering you I mean that that certainly saves money I suppose but it, it's more just um you, you know you can allocate your resources differently you you can say I'm going to I'm going to shoot two cameras today instead you know you, 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 instead of uh having a set painter or something like that so you you know you certainly um it, it, it's, it's more just freeing your mind so that you're you're not distracted by other things. And I think Joss primarily wanted to focus on the actors and make sure that he got as many takes as he could. And, you know, the, the, this you know, primarily was a film about acting and about performance. And um, I think that's why he brought me on because he knew I'd be on board to sort of say, okay, well... Things, you know, we're we're caught in this horrible situation where the light's bad and we have to shoot. And, you know, a lot of a lot of cinematographers would probably be really upset when those things happened and and and, uh, not uh, not want to uh, uh, follow suit. But but I I was on board to sort of sacrifice the photographic uh, quality in order to get him the shot, because there was just, you know, the harsh reality of independent filmmaking is, you know, time is your biggest asset and, and, and if you don't, you know, if you have 20 minutes less to shoot a scene that could make the movie that, you know, that much worse. So, um, so, you know, but, but luckily in the end, I'm pretty proud of, of, of the photography. I think it turned out fairly well given that we shot it and gosh, I don't even know what it was, 11 days or something. I mean, it was a, it was kind of a whirlwind, but, um, but, but I think it turned out okay. it turned out if great. I didn't say so <laughs> uh,
1: but I sh- we, sh- we should say, and I think Carrie Ricky apparently agrees with me. See this movie if you haven't already uh, It really is um, and, and I would agree with Kerry also that the conversational quality i 've seen a lot of different productions of much ado about nothing. i've never seen one where I felt so perfectly tuned into the conversational rhythms uh, and where there were you know, occasionally one can struggle a little bit with Elizabethan prose uh, or poetry. And, and I didn't struggle at all with this one. I absolutely knew what everybody was talking about every single second. Uh, so it's just it's just absolutely terrific that way. Well, Kerry Ricky, I want to uh, come back to something that you said. And both you uh, and Jay have sort of talked about uh, the evocation of French new wave cinema. And it seems to me that there's a little bit of a risk that a filmmaker takes when he or she goes in that direction, right? You're, you're, you're going to put something out there. And, for example, I was somebody who, for whom, Francis Ha did not work. Although I am a big Noah Baumbach fan, this movie didn't work for me. And 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 I I sometimes feel as though you're taking a little bit of, of a gamble. You're sort of saying yes, I'm going to make a different kind of statement here, and maybe I am going to uh, evoke a certain kind of film mastery uh, of the past or a style of the past. Uh, past and and. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong or feel or disagree with me, but I, I feel as though you're kind of inviting the audience to, to either go with you on this or go, oh, no, you're overreaching. You're not that guy.
4: Well, I, I think that Frances was a hipster looking to find her place in the world. And, you know, hipsters like the black-and-white 1960s film universe. And it just kind of made sense. I wouldn't have been surprised if, like, Wizard of Oz, reverse Wizard of Oz, and went into color at the end when she finds herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it didn't. What's weird is in when color film became common, which was probably in the 1940s after Gone with the Wind success, color was used to signify epics or musicals. Uh, and black and white was used to represent lived li- real life or realism. And it's very interesting that I think a lot of black and white mo- movies shot in black and white today are meant to evoke realism.
3: I think that's which, right. Which and, ironic. Yeah, go oh, ahead, Jeff. Oh, so, so, it, it, the, I, I feel that that's ironic because cause my, my, in, my first thought when I think of black and white is that it doesn't represent realism and 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 that it's actually uh it, it gives you an immediate stylization um I, I i don't think you're wrong by 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 what you say that obviously that 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 was the that was the thought uh, uh when black and white and color films were coexisting uh kind of half and half but um it, it's interesting in, in my mind i think it immediately represents a you know another world an alien planet and and not uh realism it, it it's it's sort of um yeah, I don't know. I don't know why my brain thinks like
4: that. I think you know it's funny because it it doesn't work across the board. I think Manhattan is very stylized, but I do mm-hmm. think um, uh, Last Picture Show and Paper Moon and Raging Bull seem very realistic.
1: I, I think right. sometimes I, I think it's not a single reason, right? I mean, right. I think there are a lot of different reasons. I mean, I, I think Spielberg shot Schindler's List in black and white. To evoke a certain moral seriousness, too. I mean, yes, it's historic. Yes, he's perhaps once again trying to to evoke a, c- a certain time in the history of the world. But uh, th- there's a whole bunch of other reasons why that movie's in black and white. Would you agree?
4: Well, one of them is to the show, uh, highlight the little girl in the red coat. So right. You could follow, you know, one person's life. Um. Uh, you know, the movie's not about her. But mm. the black and white isn't part about her.
1: <laughs> the um, yeah. Jay Hunter, I'm just wondering. Having done this one, was it seductive? Does it make you want to do more work in black and
3: white? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I would love to become known as the, as the go-to black and white cinematographer. I, I don't think that's going to be the case, but uh, but but I would I would uh, uh, jump at an opportunity to to shoot another black and white film. I, I'd be a fool not to. I, I um, have a th- question th- th- for the two of you. Yeah. Do you guys have kids? I do. I do not, unless you consider a dog a kid.
4: Uh, Well, but the dog doesn't watch TV (laughs) or movies. Um, Do your kids watch black and white
1: movies? My son is 24 now. I would say, in general, a black and white movie is a hard sell for him.
4: Uh, Because with my kids, I just started with A Hard Day's Night, mm -hmm. and it was no problem, (laughs) ever. (laughs) Well, you know what,
3: what, what, what I've heard uh, someone say recently that, uh, that they think that the black and white uh, resurgence has something, uh, oddly enough, to do with the, with iPhones and how you can, you know, p- people are always putting these filters over the, f- the photographs and videos they're taking, and that since the black and white and sepia option is, is at everyone's fingertips, that people are becoming a little more interested in it. It's not just this alien thing. It's, you know, it's it's black and white as part of the, the this new technological device that they oh, that's that sort of wins their lives.
4: I think the most glamorous shots of celebrities are in black and white and not in color. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, you think of Richard Avedon and stuff like that. It's
1: you know, The black and white stuff is absolutely what you remember. But I think also for some of us, um, for those of us i mean i 'm old enough to have grown up with black and white television um, and and I remember what a luxury it was when to even know somebody in the neighborhood who had a color television and and I think it sort of it, it it creates a mild prejudice against black and white it 's like this this thing oh, you had to live with My
4: father was in the furniture and appliance business and The conversion to color TV really (laughs) uh, made him a lot of money during the
1: 60s. (laughs) I would imagine. It's been so great to talk to both of you. And really, people. if you have not seen uh, Jay Hunter's cinematography and Joss Whedon's direction of Much Ado About Nothing, absolutely uh, see it as soon as you possibly can. Read the work of Carrie Rickey. Best place to find it is at com. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. We're going to come back and talk about a black and white party, the so-called Party of the Century
2: we movie.
1: All right, we're back. We're talking about black and white things. Uh, We just talked about black and white movies. Now we're going to talk about a black and white party. The year's 1966. Truman Capote is about as big a celebrity as perhaps an American writer has ever been. Uh, At that moment, In Cold Blood has come out, uh, piggybacked on top of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, He is the toast of everything. And he decides to make himself even more the toast of everything by throwing a very unusual party. Uh, Here to join us and tell us about that unusual party is Deborah Davis, the author of Party of the Century. fabulous story of Truman Capote and his black and white ball. Welcome to our show.
5: Thank you, Colin. This is such a great topic.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll see. I think it is. But uh, yes, black and white, what a great way to go. And we should say that we will talk about zebras, of course, in the final segment. It was was either them or referees. Um, Let's talk about this party. So do we know what Capote's ultimate motivation for throwing this party? It's 540 of his decision about what the creme de la creme is uh, at the at the plaza. Why does he do this?
5: Well, Truman Capote always had a million motivations for whatever he did. But this particular party uh, caught him at a moment in time um, that is very unusual in a writer's life because he had money to spend and he had time. And he just wanted to have this huge event that would celebrate all the terrific things in his life. On the other hand, he was somebody who really loved tyrannizing society. And by hosting a black and white ball, he laid on them a gimmick that would keep them scrambling for weeks before the party. You couldn't just accept and say, you know, okay, I'll pull something out of the closet. He gave them homework. They had to dress in black and white and they had to wear a mask. And New York went crazy.
1: And when we say that New York went crazy, um, this thing took on a life of its own, so much so that uh, people arriving at the airport from other cities, I read somewhere, with I think an account of one woman who arrived carrying her mask, and immediately cab drivers and porters and people like that knew exactly where she was going. I mean, the average person was talking about this party even before it happened, right?
5: Yes, exactly. Um, And uh, that's right, a a woman got into a taxi and and the drivers turned around and said, you know, oh, you're going to Truman's Ball? There was so much publicity leading up to the event, and that was really because of this incredible gimmick. Um, New York, you know, the the hat makers, the the gown designers, mask makers who had probably never enjoyed, you know, this kind of moment in the sun— they were all um, tremendously busy, and it's all that anybody could talk about. And that's exactly what Truman wanted. You know, he wanted his party to be on the tip of everybody's tongue.
1: Now, this was—and um, we should give people—to uh, to name the guest list— or even the 100 most famous people on the guest list, would take too long. But this really was, you know, the Walter Cronkites and the Sammy Davises and the Irving Berlins and the Candace Bergens, and I'm just doing the B's and the C's. I mean—
5: Right. I, well, the, the, the thing that's so interesting is that most of the guests only needed first names. Everybody knew who they were. Frank and Mia, Norman, Andy, Tallulah. You know, they were so famous. But here was the the, the real irony of the party— um, Truman asked the most famous people in the world to come to his party and then to hide their fabulous faces behind masks. It was like a big joke. You know? <laughs> and, and what was even funnier was that no one had any trouble identifying the people with their masks. That's how famous their, even their chins were.
1: Although not everybody, were there, were there problems with the mask? I mean, I, I've seen a picture of Candace Bergen with her bunny mask off. It just the whole thing got to be uh, kind of too much trouble over the course of the evening.
5: It's so much trouble. It's very uncomfortable. Um, one guest said that, that you know, he had u- he made his own mask and he had used glue and he felt Sick through the whole party. He was inhaling glue fumes <laughs> um, and was getting rather high. Uh, people abandoned the masks as soon as they could. Andy Warhol was so clever, as usual. He didn't wear one. He said his face was his mask. And he had the best time of anybody. Um, the, the masks are the first thing to go at a masked ball. They sound good, but they're really, really
1: heavy. Now, you, you talk about Capote, Capote tyrannizing society. One of the ways he did that was forcing them to dress only in black and white and to wear masks. But the other way he tyrannized society was by creating a tremendous amount of buzz around this event and then essentially playing kin- kingmaker, right? Uh, and at times even openly toying with people about whether they were going to be invited or not.
5: Oh, he was brutal. And he carried a black and white notebook, of you know, a normal composition notebook that school kids use, he carried it with him everywhere. And people would watch to see if he would you know, open it and write down their name, because that's what he did. He wrote down names in the order in which he saw people or thought of them. So when he thought of Greta Garbo, the very next name was Tallulah Bankhead. Um, he thought of all the Kennedys in order. And he had no problem saying to people, maybe I'll invite you and maybe I won't. And if you didn't get invited... You had to leave town. There was no way that you could remain in New York City if you were not a guest at at the Black and White Ball. (laughs) And he always liked to joke that he made 500 friends and 15,000 enemies.
1: Right. And actually, I, I uh, knew a little bit while he was alive, Dominic Dunn. And, and I know that he, A, didn't get invited, and B, felt as though Capote had kind of stolen this idea from him. Him, He and his wife had had a similar party, uh, but he was, I think, quite stung you know, not to have been invited.
5: Yes, and, and he was absolutely right. Capote lifted the idea completely from the Dunn party uh, the year before. Um, and of course, he couldn't invite Dominic Dunn because that would have been too embarrassing, you know, to to look him in the eye. But um, it really did turn out to be a a wonderful aesthetic choice because everybody looks better in black and white. And the room was so controlled and so elegant. And the funny thing is that although there is a lot of um, color coverage of the evening, it always looks
1: black and white. <laughs> the, a few people demurred, right? Uh, I know Peter Matheson was invited, didn't go. William Styron uh, was invited, didn't go. And I think Styron blamed Matheson sort of jokingly later that they had talked each other out of going to this, what turned out to be a completely historic event. Yes. Were, were there yes. were there other people who notably said no?
5: Yes, um, but but many of them just couldn't make it. It wasn't, you know, any any kind of a a moral or social decision. Um, Jackie Kennedy was not accepting invitations in the month of November for obvious reasons. Um, And um, Liz and Dick were shooting, so they couldn't make it. Um, Audrey uh, was also busy. Uh, You know, there there were many famous people who who didn't go that night, but there were just as many who did.
1: Uh, Really, the guest list is amazing. It is absolutely amazing that this group of people uh, were assembled in one place. But then comes the question, well, was it as good a party as the anticipation would have suggested? There are some people who say, no, (laughs) once we got here, you know, it turns out the anticipation was three quarters of the fun, not even half the fun.
5: It, it may have been all of the fun, um, but whether or not they were impressed uh, by the evening, the guests never stopped talking about it. And, and in the end, that was Capote's real goal. Um, so, and we're still talking about it. And, you know, I find young people who, you know, have no firsthand recollection of the 60s never stop talking about it. They have era envy for that last moment of 60s glamour before we started burning our bras and wearing army surplus. And um, I think that they'll still be talking about it. There's a black and white ball being held everywhere. You know, as we speak, there are, there are generations of reenactors, and it, it's just fun.
1: And Chris P. Diddy has kind of hijacked the idea a little bit. Um, although I think he does a white ball, right? Where everybody yes. everybody has to wear yes. white.
5: And, you know, people try, and, and the, the, the problem is... You have to be Truman Capote. You know, you you can't pull it off unless you are him and it's then.
1: Um, A a lot of people were reliably who they typically are. Norman Mailer, as we know, uh, got pretty well lubricated, wore a dirty overcoat over his uh, white uh, shirt and black tie and got into fights with absolutely everybody, right?
5: Yes. I mean, that's that's exactly right. You know, people behaved uh, the, the way that they always behaved. Um, Some were, you know, the last word in elegance. And, and of course, all of the real drama, you know, took place off scene. Um, There was a very funny story, you know, about Tallulah Bankhead. She spent the evening dancing with a very, very handsome young man who she took home and spent the night with and then bragged to Capote the next day. He burst out laughing. It was his doorman in a rented tuxedo. (laughs) And she had no idea, but she still had a good time.
1: Apparently so. Uh, These are great stories. These are amazing stories. And uh, I urge people to read the book and and catch up with even more uh, of these stories. But uh, thank you so much, Deborah Davis, for your time today. Thank you. All right. The book is The Party of the Century, the fabulous story of Truman Capote and his black and white ball. We'll be back with our final segment on zebras after this.
3: I went to a marvelous party. I must say, I must say the fun was intense. We all had to do What the people we knew might be doing a hundred years hence, can you beat it? We talked about growing old gracefully, and Elsie, who's 74, said, A, it's a question of being sincere, and B, if you're supple, you've nothing to fear. Then she swung upside down from a glass chandelier. I couldn't have liked it more. I've been to a marvellous party. We didn't sit down to...
2: Gary Busey and Meatloaf were invited and I wasn't? You call them celebrities? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR The part of Bill Curry was played by Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff dressed up as dancing black and white cookies, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, writer Alex Beam on the life and death of Mormon founder Joseph Smith. And now... Back to Colin.
1: And you're at our black and white show. We started the day talking about black and white movies. Uh, we've moved from there to the black and white party held by Truman Capote. Um, I forgot to ask her about this, but uh, Harold Prince, the famous director, left after half an hour. And he said he was one of several people who who could who said he could imagine the tumbrils, uh, the carts being used to uh, to bring people to the guillotine in the French Revolution. He felt as though the rest of New York uh, was, you know, about a year away from beheading them all in, uh, in Herald Square. Uh, all right, so our final topic is zebras, and we are fortunate to have with us uh, Dr. Daniel Rubenstein. Uh, he is a professor of biology at uh, Princeton and a zebra expert, which means that whenever you're at a party, Daniel Rubenstein, absolutely everybody uh, wants to have at least one conversation with a zebra expert. I mean, people are never at a loss uh, for what to talk to you about I assume. That's true. So, Hi Colin. Uh, hi, so let's begin with uh, what a zebra is. I have to admit that I never really thought very uh, carefully about this. It's, I assume it's an equid of some kind, right? It, it's essentially from um, the same family as horses. That's right.
0: It's, a, it's an equid and its uh, close relatives are the horses and the wild asses. There are three species of zebras. Two live in East Africa, the plain zebra and the grevy zebra, which is rare and endangered, and then the mountain zebra lives in southern Africa on the hills and hilltops of the range at the very southern end of the continent.
1: So one of the pressing questions, obviously, for evolutionary biology is why are zebras zebras? Why are zebras the way they are? And I gather the problem isn't coming up with one theory. It's narrowing down the field from a group of theories.
0: That's true. I mean, zebras, as as I said, are in the horse family. So you can think of them as horses with black and white striped pajamas. And everybody wants to know why zebras have stripes. And there's many hypotheses and ideas put forward um, over the centuries to explain stripes in zebras. Um, One common one is that it guards against um, predation, that the stripes allow the animals to blend in with the vegetation and so lions don't see them. That's probably not true because... At a distance, they look gray, and they don't look much different than a wild ass on the same landscape. So probably that simple explanation doesn't hold.
1: There's, there's, a, there's another related one that I read somewhere that um, the stripes actually sort of create problems of focus uh, that, they, that there were even apparently battleships uh, in World War II, I think, that were similarly camouflaged because it was hard to kind of gauge the speed and position uh, of them. I don't entirely even understand that theory, but it's a, an intriguing one.
0: Well, if anybody is old enough to remember the old barber poles with the stripes moving up and down, spiraling along – It is that sort of illusion, optical illusion, that people have thought might make it difficult for predators to make the final pounce. And using computer simulations, it does seem to work, that by having the moving stripes, it makes it difficult to judge the distance. But there's been no experimental evidence for that. And when you do big, whole-scale modeling analyses of zebra distributions and the abundance of lions, there seems to be no correlation with differences in stripes. In part, that might be because lions are everywhere in Africa, so there's not enough variation. But that explanation, although intriguing, Um, it's still something that needs to be run to ground.
1: All right, well let's continue. What are the other theories? Well, we'll get to the right one sooner or later, right? Well, another
0: one is that stripes cause animals to be attracted to each other. So it brings them closer together so that they might be able to dilute out the effect of predators, or it might be able to bring them in close proximity so they can do nice things to each other, such as groom each other. But again, horses live in groups, and wild asses live in groups, and they don't have stripes. So again, this explanation is one that although appealing to some people, doesn't seem to have strong uh,
1: empirical support. So what's your favorite theory then?
0: Well, my favorite theory is that zebras have stripes because they reduce the incidence of biting flies. And there is empirical evidence for it. So back in um, then northern Rhodesia, um, Jeff Wage did an experiment where he towed oil drums painted in different colors through the bush. And he had electrified grids on the sides of the oil drums so that he could electrocute biting flies, tsetse flies, as they approached the drums. And what he found is that towing a black drum or a white drum through the bush attracted many, many, many flies. But if the drum was black and white striped, it didn't attract hardly any flies at all. And when you get into neurophysiology of the flies, flies at a distance seem to need a sharp edge to delineate the boundary of the animal from the vegetation in the background. And so the hypothesis is that black and white striping breaks up the edge along the back so that the flies have a hard time seeing the zebras.
1: Now, for something to work that way on an evolutionary basis, it has to be uh, adaptive in a way that allows the animal with that feature, that selected feature, to, to have a greater chance of passing its genetic material onto the next generation, a better chance than, than somebody who doesn't have that feature. So, so then we have to ask, why, what, what advantage would there be in being less attractive to flies?
0: Well, flies carry diseases. And in particular, tsetse flies carry uh, trypanosomiasis. And if you get bitten by them, then you get infected.
1: It, it kind of makes sense, right? And it, it makes more sense. I mean, okay, I'm just Mr. Curbside. You know, journalist. I'm not an evolutionary <laughs> biologist, but it makes more sense to me than the predation argument because it seems to me that if if predators were the problem, if predators were the thing that selected out the the, the essentially the failures, um, that zebras would be bigger uh, in in areas where there are other equids who are preyed upon by wolves or mountain lions or something. Horses just get really big; they get too big to be taken down by the typical predator. So if it we're all about lions, to me zebras would be bigger.
0: Well, or they could be smaller, because they could then outrun the predator. Remember, you don't have to be faster than the lion, you just need to be faster (laughs) than your neighbor. Right. Okay, so speed and agility sometimes comes by being small, and it's one of the reasons why females are about 15% smaller than male zebras. They probably have extra agility, and they do need to worry about that, because they're also trailing um, offspring.
1: Now, uh, just uh, on a different subject, uh, zebras now have to coexist with livestock, sort of planned livestock, other people's cattle. So, so how does that work out, and, and how do zebras and, and cattle ranchers uh, in, in Africa uh, regard one another?
0: Well, one of the almost universals for anyone that tries to make a living off the land is that wildlife is often seen as vermin. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly true if you're a cattle rancher because your view is that every grass blade that goes to another animal other than your cow is a problem because your cow could transfer that vegetation into more meat and your profits would be greater. So ranchers worldwide, whether you're a commercial rancher or a pastoralist making a living by moving your herds on the landscape so that you could get milk and meat products for your families, view wildlife as a problem. Um, we've done some experiments, however, in Kenya at large scale, so it's fairly realistic, where we put together mixtures of cattle, and donkeys, and donkeys serving as surrogate zebras. Donkeys being tame meant we could watch what they ate just like we could watch what the cattle ate, but they have the same fermentation system, which we call a hindgut fermentation system, where they provide homes for microbes after the stomach, and the microbes break down the plant material that's not digestible to animals without cellulase, an enzyme that can break down the woody material, and then it can get passed to the intestines where it's absorbed, and the animal can get the nutrients to grow. So we put together donkeys as surrogate zebras with cattle, and we were asking a very simple question is, do they compete? Does the food that goes to zebras harm the cattle, or can each species facilitate the other? and in the sense that instead of being a competitive relationship, it could be a mutualistic and mutually beneficial relationship, and we did it at two different stocking levels. We did it at the low stocking level of one cow equivalent per every six hectares, which is what commercial ranchers stock the rangeland, and we did it at one cow for every two hectares, which is what a pastoralist who needs to make a a living for his, his impoverished family off the landscape, and in both cases, The the mixed herds did better Mm. in terms of the growth rate of both the cattle and the donkeys than the pure stands as if they were only used in the landscape without the other member, um, the, the other grazing member of the pair. And so what we found happened is that the hindgut fermenters, which can live on coarse vegetation, they ate the stems and the poor plant parts. And they could make a living off of that. So the donkeys came in and changed the structure of the grassland. They ate all the poor quality material in the stems. And then they consumed some of the good vegetation, the leaves that were green and digestible. But the cows normally are put off by those stems hitting them in the faces. And so once the donkeys have transformed the landscape, they opened it up so that the cattle could do better.
1: Um, We've only got about 30 seconds left, but uh, just very quickly, speaking of putting things together, um, uh, people have put zebras and donkeys together and created zonkeys, right? There is such a thing? They have. People
0: have bred them
1: and have made these hybrids, absolutely. And so why can't I have a pet one? Why, are they, why aren't they available? Why? Uh,
0: well, it's actually hard. The, the, each of the equid species have a different number of chromosomes, and so naturally hybrids are hard to form. And what they've often done in some cases, implanted embryos in the other to make the novelty. Sometimes they've actually um, mixed the genome and then planted that embryo. Sometimes there's been natural fertilizations in zoos, and they've taken. But for the most part, the chromosomes don't line up and the embryo dies. So it's very rare to get... The, the, um, the hybrids, these mixed species, these Z donkeys and, and, and the horse zebras and things like that.
1: All right. This has been fascinating. And the next time you're at a party with Dr. Daniel Rubenstein, seek him out. He's a professor of biology at Princeton and a zebra expert. I still want a zonkey, but I'll first I'll get the woolly mammoth that we're going to create. We're going to do a whole show about bringing back woolly mammoths through cloning or however it is that you do them. I want a woolly mammoth, a small woolly mammoth. I want a miniature woolly mammoth and a zonkey and then I'll be happy. Thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show, especially Kyone. This was uh, her baby. We'll be back tomorrow with Alex Beam and Joseph Smith.
2: Another zebra. Zelda looks lonely. I want a zebra.
0: Excuse me. Are you a zebra at a movie theater?
2: Oh, yeah.
0: What are you doing at a movie?
2: Well, I liked the book.